Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tech, episode number 47 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. San Francisco has a long-standing reputation as a literature-loving town, as evidenced by some government statistics I noticed a couple of years back, ranking us as having the highest per capita spending on books in the United States. Over the decades, the city has nurtured a number of notable writers, from Mark Twain to Dave Eggers, and a quick glance at a street directory reveals names honoring everyone from William Saroyan to Dashiell Hammett. There's one literary memorial in town, though, that had always puzzled me, albeit with the sort of puzzlement that tends to vanish the moment some other bright and shiny something swoops in to distract my attention. This time, however, trusty notebook and shirt pocket, I captured that fleeting interest and tracked it down. And here it is, this week's Sparkle Tack. Set in the midst of Portsmouth Square, the open-air living room of Chinatown, surrounded by old men smoking and playing Chinese chess, stands a seemingly incongruous monument. Atop an elegantly sculpted rectilinear pillar of granite floats a tall-masted ship of bronze, bedecked with gilded sails voluptuously filled with an imaginary wind. Carved into the stone appear these words, To Remember... Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson? I knew him as the author of one of my most beloved boyhood books, Treasure Island, but I thought he had lived in Scotland. What was the San Francisco connection? I'd heard rumors that Treasure Island out in the bay was named after the novel, but others scoff at that notion. And furthermore, what on earth would that have to do with Chinatown? Hmm. Time to hit the books. Stevenson was born in 1850 in Edinburgh, Scotland, just about the same time that the first wave of Chinese immigrants arrived on California's shores and the nucleus of San Francisco's Chinatown began to form to the north and east of Portsmouth Square. He was an almost stereotypically pale and sickly child, as plagued by illness as he was nurtured by the dramatic stories told by his faithful nurse, stories from the Bible, from Victorian penny serials and morbid tales of the Scots Presbyterian martyrs. His father was an engineer specializing in lighthouses, and young Lewis was slated to follow in his footsteps. But though engaged at university in the study of first engineering and then the law, it was not long before it became apparent to him that his destiny was to write. His world turned upside down by the discovery of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He began to use his summer vacations to travel to more artistically congenial climes of France, where he could feed his desires and ambitions in the company of other writers, painters, and poets. It was here that a chance meeting was to change the direction of his life and inevitably point him in the direction of the new world. He arrived at a French artist's colony in 1876, his first work having just been accepted for publication, an account of a rambling trip from Antwerp to northern France, when his eyes happened to fall upon the darkly delicate features of a young American woman named Fanny Osborne. That the woman was married, had a small child, and was over ten years his senior made little difference to Stevenson. He had just seen the woman he was to love for the rest of his days. 
Fanny, it turns out, was a San Franciscan and had separated from her philandering husband, leaving the States both in pursuit of a new bohemian life and some respite from her old one. Stevenson's attentions were returned, though the affair was complicated, not least because she was married, and we are talking about the Victorian era here, but also by the appearance of a blackmailer. And by the time she suddenly decided to return to San Francisco in 1878, Stevenson, at least, was deeply in love. The separation crushed him. Already a scarecrow of a man, he grew gaunt and even paler. After a period of aimless and brooding European wanderings and some brilliant writing, certainly inspired by his misery, Stevenson received a telegram from Fanny. No one knows what it contained, for he would not reveal its contents. Some speculate today that it contained news of her impending divorce. Some say that it was news of her ill health. The most romantic interpretation, though, and therefore my favorite, is that she tried to break it off with him. Stevenson dropped everything, and with little money and even less preparation, he sailed off for America to seek his beloved, armed with a knapsack containing his personal effects, a tiny suitcase, and, for which I love his priorities, Bancroft's stupendously heavy six-volume History of the United States. We're blessed today that Stevenson took this trip, because though thousands of other emigrants had and would also make it, he had the rare capacity to capture it beautifully. His work, The Amateur Emigrant, records the perils and privations of his journey in vivid and fascinating detail, not the least entertaining of which is, though he was loath to fancy himself a member of the upper class, the collision between his genteel Britishness with the incivility and rough kindness of his American cousins. Stevenson's impetuous flight had the effect of cutting him off from his family's financial support, he told no one specifically where he was going. Even his closest friends thought he was only planning to travel as far as New York. And though having become accustomed to a certain amount of roughing it, this journey across an uncivilized continent was more difficult than the gangly, still sickly youth could have imagined. At the point of embarkation, he writes of hours suffering under a freezing rain, of purchasing oranges so devoid of juice that he discarded them under a train car, of being horrified by the sight of the desperate scramble for his garbage by his fellow passengers. The emigrant trains from the east to the west coast were particularly brutal, with no accommodations made for comfort at all in the roughly converted cars. Stevenson records all manner of minor and major indignities, from the forced sharing of overpriced, straw-stuffed bed cushions to the pointed indifference of railroad officials. On one occasion, he writes, Equality, though conceived very largely in America, does not extend so low down as to an emigrant. Thus, in all other trains, a warning cry of All aboard recalls the passengers to take their seats. But as soon as I was alone with immigrants, and from the transfer all the way to San Francisco, I found this ceremony was pretermitted, which means, by the way, intentionally disregarded. I had to look it up. The train stole from the station without note of warning, and you had to keep an eye on it even as you ate. The annoyance is considerable, and the disrespect both wanton and petty. 
For further insight into his cross-country experience, take a peek at this remarkable work linked to at sparkletack.com. It was on this train, a journey which lasted for many days, that we see the first clue towards what would eventually lead to the erection of that monument in Portsmouth Square. Among his many observations, one stands in bold relief, both in terms of the number of words devoted to it and in sharpness of tone. In a chapter entitled, Despised Races, he notes with incredulity and disgust the prejudice of the Caucasian Western populace towards the Chinese. With your permission, I'll read you an edited excerpt. With your permission, I'll read you an edited excerpt, and also note that the cars were segregated, one for families, one for single white men, and one for Chinese. Of all stupid ill feelings, the sentiment of my fellow Caucasians towards our companions in the Chinese car was the most stupid and the worst. They seemed never to have looked at them, listened to them, or thought of them, but hated them a priori. The Mongols were their enemies in that cruel and treacherous battlefield of money. They could work better and cheaper in half a hundred industries, and hence there was no calumny too idle for the Caucasians to repeat and even to believe. They declared them hideous vermin and affected a kind of choking in the throat when they beheld them. The emigrants declared that the Chinese were dirty. In their efforts after cleanliness, however, they put the rest of us to shame. We all pigged and stewed in one infamy, wet our hands and faces for half a minute daily on the platform, and were unashamed. But the Chinese never lost an opportunity, and you would see them washing their feet, an act not dreamed of among ourselves, and going as far as decency permitted to wash their whole bodies. These very foul and malodorous Caucasians entertained the surprising illusion that it was the Chinese wagon and that alone which stank. I have said already that it was the exception, and notably the freshest of the three. These judgments are typical of the feeling in all Western America. The Chinese are considered stupid because they are imperfectly acquainted with English. They're held to be base because their dexterity and frugality enable them to underbid the lazy, luxurious Caucasian. They are said to be thieves. I'm sure they have no monopoly of that. They're called cruel. The Anglo-Saxon and the cheerful Irishman may each reflect before he bears the accusation. I am told again that they are of the race of river pirates and belong to the most despised and dangerous class in the Celestial Empire. But if this be so, what remarkable pirates have we here? And what must be the virtues, the industry, the education, and the intelligence of their superiors at home? For my own part, I could not look but with wonder and respect on the Chinese. Their forefathers watched the stars before mine had begun to keep pigs. They walk the earth with us, but it seems they must be of different clay. They hear the clock strike the same hour, yet surely of a different epoch. Whatever is thought within the circuit of the Great Wall, what the wry-eyed, spectacled schoolmaster teaches in the hamlets round Peking, religion so old that our language looks a halfling boy alongside, philosophy so wise that our best philosophers find things therein to wonder at, all this traveled alongside of me for thousands of miles over plain and mountain. 
I should mention that when this work was printed some years later, its dark tone distressed his friends and family, and his father bought up every copy of the already printed travelogue and had them destroyed. He wrote those words in 1879. The period in world history known as the Long Depression was well underway, a worldwide economic downturn which manifested itself in the United States in the Panic of 1873, during which the New York Stock Exchange was closed for a week and a half and major banks and railroads collapsed. On the West Coast, the boom economy of the 1850s had begun to drastically contract, putting thousands out of work, and the failing of the Comstock silver mines in 77, as well as Ralston's Bank of California, made the situation even more grim. Scores of businesses and factories closed their doors, and the streets were soon filled with the unemployed, many of whom resorted to joining the ranks of local hoodlums. However bad it was here, though, conditions in China were far worse, and emigration from that country continued unabated. The Chinese, mostly men, flocked to California in search of opportunity, and as hard workers willing to sell their labor for very little, became targets for the anger of unemployed whites. Stevenson observed emigrant trains heading east, away from the erstwhile western paradise, filled with men calling, Go back! He writes, Hungry Europe and hungry China, each pouring from their gates in search of provender, had here come face to face. The two waves had met. East and west had alike failed. The whole round world had been prospected and condemned. There was no El Dorado anywhere. Until one could emigrate to the moon, it seemed as well to stay patiently at home. The stage was set for a scene all too typical in the course of human history in which one people are brutally scapegoated for the problems of another. The thousands of Americans who had migrated from the East had arrived with anti-European nativist values easily redirected towards the exotic and insular Asians, and the not-yet-white immigrants, such as the Irish and Russians, quickly understood that by attacking the Chinese as well, their own status was elevated. The random violence and humiliation that the Chinese suffered during this period is well recorded by history, and with the highest concentration of Chinese on the West Coast, the phenomenon was especially evident in San Francisco. Gangs of young hoodlums prowled the streets after dark, looking for victims to beat and rob. Anti-Chinese propaganda was ubiquitous, from formal newspaper editorials to posters and cartoons. Specifically, anti-Chinese legislation was passed, including immigration and laundry operation taxes. Things came to a head in the summer of 1877 at the Sandlot, a large vacant lot next to the City Hall in the area of Grove and Larkin Streets. A mass meeting was called by a labor group to publicly discuss their grievances, which included, I must add, as much anger at the wealthy capitalists on Knob Hill who profited from their cheap labor as it was at the Chinese themselves. Hoodlums and agitators at the fringes of the crowd stirred up a riot, and mobs rampaged across the city, burning Chinese businesses, beating any man they could find, and dragging Chinese prostitutes out of their brothels and using them horribly. Those steamship wharves were attacked, and lumber yards and warehouses were ignited and burned to the ground. The Chinese were the primary targets of the violence. 
I'm proud to say that these shameful activities did not go unopposed. The police were overwhelmed on that first night, and over 4,000 citizens enrolled in an informal committee of safety, popularly known as the Pick Handle Brigade, who, along with the National Guard, finally battled the rioters to a standstill. But by then, the anti-Chinese violence had raged for three nights with numerous casualties. Following the riots, it became clear that the working man in San Francisco could inspire fear in the capitalist classes, and that meant political leverage. Irish dock worker Dennis Kearney, ironically a member of that pickhandle brigade, took full advantage of this. He was one of a score of rabble-rousing populists, or as historian Herbert Asbury colorfully names them, irresponsible crack-brained spellbinders who were on the streets preaching murder and mayhem even as Stevenson was arriving. Kearney rose to power by denouncing the Chinese as shrewd, opportunist, and disloyal at any and all opportunities. His fulminations against the Asiatic race, as well as against the blood-sucking capitalists, emanated daily from the sandlot, and though an uneducated man, he attracted ever-larger crowds of all classes. Kearney was an incredibly colorful character to be addressed more fully in future episodes of Sparkle Tech, but suffice it to say that he gained considerable political power through his radical and hateful speech. He formed the Working Man's Party in 1878 with the support of the city's newspapers, most notably the Chronicle, and spearheaded the anti-Chinese movement in political venues for the next decade, culminating in the passage of the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the first specifically race-oriented legislation of its kind in the country. Meanwhile, back on the train, Stevenson knew nothing of this situation as the weary emigrants rattled on westward. He was delivered to the Oakland terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad almost at death's door from the privations of the journey, but felt just well enough on the ferry ride across the bay to jot down the following impression. The day was breaking as we crossed the ferry. The fog was rising over the cityed hills of San Francisco. The bay was perfect, not a ripple, scarce a stain upon its blue expanse. Everything was waiting, breathless for the sun. A spot of cloudy gold lit first upon the head of Tamalpais, and then widened downward on its shapely shoulder. The air seemed to awaken and began to sparkle. Then suddenly, the tall hills Titan discovered, then the city of San Francisco, and the bay of gold and corn were lit from end to end with summer daylight. Upon entering the city, though, it was not long before a less glorious reality made itself known. Perhaps it was Kearney himself whom Stevenson heard and was referring to when he wrote, A while ago it was the Irish, now it is the Chinese that must go. We may regret the free tradition of the Republic, which loved to depict herself with open arms welcoming all unfortunates. Then certainly, as a man who believes that he loves freedom, I may be excused some bitterness when I find her sacred name misused in the contention. It was but the other day that I heard a vulgar fellow in the sandlot, the popular tribune of San Francisco, roaring for arms and butchery. At the call of Abraham Lincoln, said the orator, ye rose in the name of freedom to set free the Negroes. Can ye not rise and liberate yourself from a few dirty Mongolians? 
Stevenson, of course, had other things on his mind in the new world, namely a matter of the heart. I'll make a longish and complicated story short when it comes to the resolution of Stevenson's affair with Fanny. It was messy and convoluted, and another year went by before she agreed to pursue a divorce. She moved to Oakland while Stevenson stayed in San Francisco to maintain some level of propriety and still be close by. He found a cheap room in a boarding house run by an Irish couple on Bush Street and became a great favorite of the proprietor's children who amused him by announcing at every coming or going, There's the author! Stevenson wrote cheerfully to a friend about his schedule. Any time between eight and half-past nine in the morning, a slender gentleman in an ulster, with a volume buttoned into the breast of it, may be observed leaving number 608 Bush and descending Powell with an active step. He spent his days either buried in his room, engaged darkly with an ink bottle, as he put it, from morning till night, or by taking long and solitary walks through the various neighborhoods or along the beaches, invariably ending up in Chinatown. He later wrote, Chinatown, by a thousand eccentricities, drew and held me. I could never have enough of its ambiguous interracial atmosphere, as of a vitalized museum. Never wonder enough at its outlandish, necromantic-looking vegetables set forth to sell in commonplace American shop windows, its temple doors open and the scent of the joss stick streaming forth on the American air, its kites of oriental fashion hanging fouled in western telegraph wires, its flights of paper prayers which the trade wind hunts and dissipates along western gutters. Though he did make a few connections with the local intelligentsia, occasionally spending afternoons at the Bohemian Club library, Portsmouth Square was his favorite haunt. He could be seen there hour after hour, relaxing happily in the sunshine, listening, as one reporter later wrote, to the tales of the vagabonds of the seven seas, or more commonly, with Chinese children gathered around his feet, enraptured by his endless fountain of stories. He was unwilling to spend any of the family allowance which had finally caught up with him, and so lived a life of penury, only allowing ten cents for breakfast and fifty apiece for lunch and dinner. When a wave of influenza swept through his boarding house, first attacking the youngest of his landlord's children, Stevenson sat up nights with the boy. As he nursed him back to health, he was careless of the fact that he himself was a ripe target for disease. The child recovered, but though he tried to keep his illness concealed, Fanny discovered Stevenson once again at death's door, and despite his protestations, moved him across the bay to a hotel in Oakland. The two did eventually marry honeymooning in a rustic mining cabin up in Napa, and finally leaving for Scotland. Though Stevenson planned to return to California the next year, he would not grace the state with his presence for almost a decade. The next seven years in Scotland were incredibly fruitful, both literarily and financially. During this time, he wrote the works for which he's best known today, Kidnapped, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and, of course, Treasure Island, inspired by his new stepson, but more deeply by his brief but penetrating stay on the American West Coast. 
His friends criticized the Americanisms which had begun to creep into his letters back home, and his concept of literature was clearly altered by his exposure to the frontier. We want incident, interest, action. To the devil with your philosophy. He revealed later in life that the scene for Treasure Island was part California, part imagination. Then I discovered a passage in one of his novels, The Wrecker, which clearly calls on our lively and brutal city for adventurous inspiration. Just listen to this. Some afternoons and evenings remained at my disposal every week, a circumstance the more agreeable as I was a stranger in a city singularly picturesque. I grew, or declined, into a waterside prowler, a lingerer on wharves, a frequenter of shy neighborhoods, a scraper of acquaintance with eccentric characters. I visited Chinese and Mexican gambling hells, German secret societies, sailors' boarding houses, and dives of every complexion of the disreputable and dangerous. I have seen greasy Mexican hands pinned to the table with a knife for cheating, seamen knocked down upon the public street and carried insensible on board short-handed ships, shots exchanged, and the smoke dispersing from the doors of the saloon, I have heard cold-minded Polacks debate upon the readiest method of burning San Francisco to the ground. Hot-headed working men and women bawl and swear in the Tribune at the Sandlot. Then Kearney himself opened his subscription for a gallows, named the manufacturers who were to grace it with their dangling bodies. Wow. Finally, still suffering from the tubercular damage to his lungs and in the last phase of a search for a healthful climate, he returned from Scotland to San Francisco in 1888, a much acclaimed and wealthy man, but this time used her simply as a gateway to a new adventure in the South Seas. He and Fanny chartered a large yacht, then after a tremendous farewell party on board, set sail for the Pacific Islands where he eventually built a home and remained until his death in 1894. He's buried in Samoa on a mountaintop looming above a large nature preserve named in his honor. Fanny returned to San Francisco after his burial and commissioned a Russian hill home from noted local architect Willis Polk, still standing at 2319 Hyde Street at Lombard. She lived out her own life here as a completely independent woman, a member of San Francisco's genteel artistic bohemia. Upon hearing news of Stevenson's death, Bruce Porter, a well-known San Francisco artist and writer, conceived the idea of erecting a memorial. He and architect Polk sketched a rough plan on a tablecloth during lunch one day at the Palace Hotel, then excitedly took the tablecloth with them to Porter's studio to finish the design. The Arts and Crafts Guild were enlisted as supporters of the project, and sculptor George Piper was brought in to collaborate. Typical of San Francisco to this very day, though, the process of erecting public art was extremely problematic. The idea that art be scattered throughout a city's neighborhoods rather than concentrated in a sort of splendid central ghetto was a relatively new one out here, and though the cost of its creation was only $2,000 to be raised by private donations, many San Franciscans wouldn't open their wallets unless the location was moved to the newly opened Golden Gate Park. 
small-minded prejudice against locating what was seen as possibly the most artistic monument on the West Coast in such a tawdry quarter as Chinatown also played a role. That in the end, much of the funding came from admirers of Stevenson in the East. To make matters worse, at its first exposure to the Board of Supervisors, the design was rejected on aesthetic grounds. The renowned San Francisco art police have a long history, dear listener. Polk was naturally livid with rage, but bit his lip and made minor revisions. A year and a half later, the gracefully evocative monument was finally installed. The inscription on the side is inspirational, indicative of the humble nature and generosity of the man that it honors. The words are taken from a work entitled The Christmas Sermon, written the year he sailed under the Golden Gate for Samoa. To be honest, to be kind, to earn a little and to spend a little less, to make upon the whole a family happier for his presence, to renounce when that shall be necessary and not be embittered, to keep a few friends, but these without capitulation. Above all, on the same grim condition, to keep friends with himself. Here is a task for all that a man has of fortitude and delicacy. The Bay Area is generously supplied with memorials to Stevenson's brief stay on our shores, with schools, roads, and parks honoring his memory and contributions to our literary culture. But especially given the reason for its placement in Portsmouth Square, this is certainly the one that I love best. When I see it now, I can't help but picture that strange, skinny man sitting on a bench in the sunshine surrounded by children. Do I even need to make the point of what a strange and striking sight this must have been? That during this period of racism and violence, a white man chose to treat an Asian as an equal, or even as a human being, was in and of itself something worth noting and remembering. He was not the only one, of course, and it would not be at all just to tar an entire town with the brush of bigotry, but put it this way. When the Chinatown Alleyway tour groups pass the Stevenson Memorial today, they simply say, It was not fashionable to be friends with Chinese in the 1800s, but Robert Louis Stevenson didn't really care what society thought of him. He was a friend. Thanks go out this week to 2RD for supplying the track Last Symmetrical Angel, provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check them out at music.podshow.com. The usual assortment of links appear on the sparkletech.com website, and I'm reachable there on the comments page or by email at sparkletech at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Till next time.